is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping, in for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade two weeks ago. Now President Biden is taking action. He signed an executive order today to protect access to abortion while also slamming the high court for its ruling. We will go in-depth. The L.A. County Board of Supervisors, well, they want the power to fire the sheriff. Voters could decide. We will hear what the sheriff has to say about all that. And former Trump White House counsel Pat Cipollone has answered questions in front of the January 6th committee. But will it be enough to satisfy the Justice Department? Following a recent rash of mass shootings here in the U.S., we now had one in Denmark and an assassination of a former prime minister in Japan. We go in-depth into why the violence is spreading overseas. And stores are no longer empty. They're so full now, they're offering massive discounts to get you inside. We end the show with an interview with rock star Kenny Loggins. He has a new memoir out about his decades-long career, and he's also performing again with Jim Messina. So I kind of like the idea that they've got so much stuff in the stores that maybe they'll just, like, give it to you. I think they might be doing that in, like, deep discounts. Yeah, like you're walking and go, I'll take that TV set. Please, I'll take it off your hands. Yeah, okay. Maybe not TVs, but yeah. (laughs) We start, though, with President Biden's executive order on abortion. With us is Mary Ziegler, Professor she specializes in reproductive rights law at Florida State University College of Law, and she's also author of the book Abortion in America, Legal History, Roe v. Wade to the Present. Thank you for being with us. Um, so what President Biden did today with, you know, expected and much fanfare accomplishes exactly what? We don't really know. So this executive order was largely asking various parts of the federal government to study what could be done. Um, It isn't really spelling out what will be done. So those decisions will be made by, you know, the Federal Consumer Trade Commission, by the Justice Department, by other federal stakeholders. This is more kind of, I think, a placeholder from the Biden administration telling us something's going to be done, but not really filling in the exact details of what. Well, Mary, I think what today certainly was, was a campaign event. I mean, he deferred to us, the voters, saying, if we want to do something about it, we got to go to the polls in November and elect people who can codify Roe v. Wade. Yeah, and that's not wrong. I mean, even there there are um, certainly in the kind of abortion rights advocacy community, there have been people calling for more robust um, steps from the Biden administration. But uh, and that's certainly, you know, the Biden administration has not been aggressive on this. That's fair. But I think part of what's in the background of that is that anything Biden could do would be kind of legally questionable. And so I think in part what Biden is saying is if you want lasting protection, if you want something substantive, you have to have different people in Congress and it's going to require voters to do that. But if you're, say, a a woman who is in need of abortion today uh, and living in a Mm -hmm. state that has one of those trigger laws that have effectively made uh, abortion now illegal, Are you any better off today because of what President Biden put his signature on? I mean, I couldn't honestly tell you because what the executive order says is unclear. Um, So, I mean, you're better off only insofar as you know that maybe the federal government will do what it can do to help you. But we don't know what the federal government thinks that is. (laughs) So, I mean, not really. No. I mean, I think fundamentally, um, the, the, whether that person is better off or not will have to do more with their access to medication abortion. I, we may change our tunes on this. It may be that 
when the Biden administration fills in the gaps, that there's there's more to this than we currently think. But at the moment, it's just too unclear to even say. So this this was a press opportunity, basically. I mean, the, the president knows there's only so much he can do through executive order, but he wants to be up on there, uh, go on record saying, hey, what the Supreme Court did was bad. Uh, yeah, I want the cameras on me to, to give my message to the American people that that's the case. So, hey, I want to at least show you on on your side here for however effective that's going to end up being. Yeah, I think we we also know that the Biden administration has been under a lot of pressure from supporters of abortion rights. Um, There are people who, for example, have noted that Biden almost never used the word abortion until recently at all, um, much less kind of call for anything meaningful. So I think this is also a response to the perception within the Democratic Party from more liberal Democrats that Biden hasn't done anything. And I think it's to your point, Biden sees this as a potential opportunity to get voters who may be unhappy with inflation or other things to say, "Okay, well, I don't really want to have a federal law banning abortion either, which we could see if you have Republicans in the White House and Congress, you know, maybe a law banning abortion in California or New York. Maybe that would turn out voters who would otherwise stay home other things the Biden administration is doing. Professor Mary Ziegler, specializing in reproductive rights law at Florida State University College of Law. Right now, the ALA County Board of Supervisors will consider a proposal that would put a measure on the November ballot asking voters to give the board power to remove an elected sheriff from office for cause. And this comes following tension and disputes between the board and the current sheriff, Alex Villanueva. And guess who's with us now? But the sheriff himself. Sheriff, thanks for being with us. Uh, you got it, John. Uh, so uh, on the surface, uh, it I don't know, I can see some people saying that's not a really bad idea. I mean, people have to be responsible to somebody. And I know you're an elected official, so you ultimately are responsible to voters. But why not have the Board of Supervisors, if the voters choose to let them do that, have power to fire you or any future sheriff? Because it's designed to basically make the soup, the sheriff dependent on the board of supervisors and subordinate to the board. So if they don't like you, well, then they're going to find a way to get rid of you. And so they decide what cause constitutes. And we already have supervision of sheriffs and district attorneys throughout the entire state, and that's called the attorney general. This entire motion totally hides that simple fact. And the fact that we have elections, we have recall elections. In fact, the draft came out the very same day that voters uh, delivered over 700,000 signatures to the registrar recorder to recall Georgia Gascon, who's not doing his job. Imagine that. So, Sheriff, they feel that they need to do this. But, you know, you talk about George Gascon, and there are the signatures there necessary to uh, get the recall at least going. So I'm sure you would default to that. Look, if the voters don't want me around, they should start collecting the signatures, and we haven't seen that. Exactly. They've never tried to do that because the votes are just not there to do that. This is a political power grab, nothing else. In fact, one of the supervisors currently under criminal investigation, that's Sheila Kuehl, and she's been defying a search warrant her and her fellow members of the MTA board, a search warrant already signed by a judge to turn over documents in relations to a a potentially fraudulent uh, sole source contract. And she would be voting on a measure that would allow her to then get rid of the sheriff who was investigating a criminal act. And and for this allegation, you have evidence, I presume? Oh, yes. (laughs) There's a ton of evidence on this already. And we've already had search warrants executed. 
The only holdout was the MTA board. They didn't want to turn over documents. Is there, Sheriff, the same kind of and quality of evidence uh, on that allegation as there is uh, for the allegation you made against the Inspector General Max Huntsman to the no. LA Times editorial board? Same kind of, in- of information? That entire investigation has been complete. It has been turned over to the Attorney General's office in September of last year. And what was the response of the board? Lobby the Attorney General to do an investigation on the investigation, not wait for a decision from the Attorney General about whether or not uh, it's prosecutable. And that that's corruption at its finest right there. A lot of this is circulating, of course, around the investigation into alleged deputy gangs. And as you maintain, there are no deputy gangs. But what do you think motivates the people, the deputies and whistleblowers, who have come forward? Do you think somebody's put them up to this? Do you think that uh, there's money behind this and that it's political? Why, Why would they do what they're doing if there are no deputy gangs? There are three groups. The Board of Supervisors. They're political appointees, which is the Oversight Commission Inspector General. The third group are the internal individuals, the former loyal foot soldiers of Paul Tanaka, who really don't like to be held accountable. So they're fighting back, and they've joined forces now with the other two. This is where all of this movement is generated. I've asked for evidence on deputy gangs, and for some reason nobody can supply it. All they do is say, oh, my God, there's deputy gangs. But okay, name one, and they can't. Okay, so let's go back to the whole issue of of evidence. Uh, And I want to go back to uh, your allegation against Max Huntsman uh, as being a Holocaust denier. That's what you told the L.A. Los Angeles, Los Angeles Times editorial board. You promised back in June, I believe it was, that you would offer evidence. Where is the evidence of that? Because as you know, Mr. Huntsman vehemently denies that. Mr. Huntsman vehemently denies it, and Mr. Huntsman can't explain why he was downloading my personnel files when I was a retired lieutenant. He but that's not the question. That. But that's not the question. The question. Oh, no, that's no, no. exactly what is the question. No, no, no. Yeah. No, my question, maybe it's your question, but my question is, you had promised back in June, and I think I've got the month right, uh, that you would offer at some point evidence to support your allegation that Huntsman is a Holocaust denier. Do you have that evidence? Why have you not produced that? There's two employee complaints coming out of Huntsman's own office, and that contains those allegations. So when those are available public, I'd be more happy to provide them to you. And, uh, again, that's all the politics of distraction. The focus is the power grab by the Board of Supervisors, and you're running off with uh, Holocaust. That has nothing to do with violent crime, with homelessness. What this is all about is trying to make the sheriff dependent is subordinate to the Board of Supervisors. And, well, when we're talking about the fact that there is a hotly contested election and that uh, you are, you know, have a little bit of ground to make up after the primary, I mean, it's needless to say that this, this whole saga may have damaged you uh, electorally. Are you willing to acknowledge that? Well, I don't think any sheriff has ever faced an active Board of Supervisors recruiting, uh, you know, eight candidates to run against them. This is like a first in history. And the effort to remove me from office started before I even took office. This is all about making me a one-term sheriff because they want a puppet sheriff. They had it in McDonald's. Now they want it with Luna. What is the difference? I act independently on behalf of the people to combat violent crime, homelessness, make our employees accountable, transparent, and we're succeeding. 
But why do you think they want a puppet, if that's the case? What would they accomplish? It's real simple. When you're giving away $6.5 billion to the homeless industrial complex, the last thing in the world you need is a sheriff is willing to investigate when there's a, a potential crime, conflicts of interest, sweetheart deals that are robbing the taxpayer. Of course they don't want a, an independent sheriff who is actually going to do his job. That is the worst nightmare in their world. That's why I was targeted from day one to be a one-term sheriff. Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Vidueva. Sheriff, thank you. You got it. Now we want to touch on uh, some news that's been happening uh, today. The January 6th committee meeting behind closed doors to interview former Trump White House counsel uh, Pat Cipollone. So uh, we will uh, find out in due time uh, what some of these uh, discussions may have uh, bore out as we await for the uh, next hearing. And uh, Charles, what are some of the things that uh, you, are, as a close observer of this, are hoping that he answers? Well, uh, by the way, I, I do want to mention that we were hoping to hear from uh, Norm mm-hmm. Eisen, uh, who is a senior fellow at the uh, Brookings Institution and uh, has worked, of course, in the in the White House. And uh, while we're waiting for him, uh, you know, it, Cipollone has been described by some in the committee as holding the keys to the kingdom, is how they put it. Why? Because he was not Mr. Trump's personal lawyer, but he was the White House attorney, White House counsel, lawyer, in effect, for the American public. And in that uh, position, he was privy to a lot of what was going on in the days leading up to January 6th and on that day. And what he is expected to be saying behind closed doors, although being videotaped for the uh, historical record, is the conversations he had with Donald Trump when Donald Trump was president. Did he tell the president, as other testimony said he did, did he warn him that certain acts would be very illegal? For example, Mr. Trump wanting to go with his followers at that rally and march to the Capitol building. Uh, We had testimony last week, as you know, Brian, where uh, we understand that Cipollone told the president that, you know, if he were to do that, they would all be charged with just about every crime imaginable. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what the what the discussion was. So this would be a, a very key witness. Some issues, of course, come up because as an attorney, there is this sort of issue of lawyer-client privilege, right? And so they're trying to get around it, and that's why he was subpoenaed. Uh, Norm Eisen, I understand, who we didn't have to subpoena. He's here on his very own initiative. Norm, that, <laughs> that, thanks, for, thanks for being with us. Uh, so we were just reviewing a little bit about why uh, some other members of that committee have described Pat Cipollone as being the person who holds the keys to the kingdom. And I was giving a little bit of a discourse on why that might be. Do you think that this, though— is as important an event as has been described by members of the committee to the public? I, I do think it, it is a very important event. And thanks for having me back on. You know, I love to come on my hometown fave <laughs> station to tell you about all the developments in here in D.C. Um, and the reason it is so important is... Um, Although he holds the keys to the kingdom, I think those keys were already handed over by Cassidy Hutchinson when she testified uh, about Donald Trump's murderous intent. That was the missing piece that that what 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 did Trump what was going on in his head on January 6th? But Pat Cipollone holds holds the keychain to the kingdom. 
because he can kind of pull together all those keys that uh, Cassidy laid out there. He can corroborate them and gives you some uh, some additional uh, heft to those keys to the kingdom. So he's very important. And it's not just about um, him saying on January 6th that Trump would not act because he agreed with the mob that Mike Pence should be hanged. And it's not just him saying that they risked violating uh, every criminal law under the sun. He also gives you earlier parts of the conspiracy, like the, the January 3rd meeting when Donald Trump tried to take over the Department of Justice to to use them to attack the election, which Cipollone described as a murder-suicide pact. Norm, we, lo- so Norm, we, we, we love you, but we got to go because we're running out of time. <laughs> but we'll talk again. <laughs> <laughs> Look forward. Norm Eisen uh, with us. Thanks again. This is KNX In-Depth. Brian Ping in today for Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Japan has been rocked by the assassination of former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He was shot and killed during a campaign event. Political gun violence, exceedingly rare in Japan, where they have very strict gun laws. The assassination follows a mass shooting at a mall in Denmark. That was just last weekend. Three people there were killed in another country where gun violence just doesn't happen often. With us is Laurie Post who's director of the Bueller Center for Health Policy and Economics at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. She researches mass shootings. Thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, uh, you know, I just a few days ago, uh, I was in a part of the, the country where certainly more than here in California, many people do carry guns and are very much in favor of having weapons. And I know that they will look at these examples, Denmark, now Japan, both places, as I just said, with very strict uh, gun laws, and say, you see, what good are having all these strict gun laws? If people want to do something with a gun, they're going to do it anyway. What do you say to that? Um, yeah, let's look at them, and but let's do a deeper dive on, the, on these countries. So Denmark had their last mass shooting in 2015. They just had um, a mass shooting. I wouldn't even call it a mass shooting, actually, because it doesn't rise to the threshold of four more fatalities. However, three people were killed. Um, the gunman had a rifle, a knife, and a second gun. Um, I don't believe he had an assault weapon, but but he may, he may have. I just don't know the details on that one. But anyways, this is the first time they had a mass shooting since 2015. And the other thing is that this one is probably not also not like a mass shooting, a different motivation. This was a felony mass shooting. The alleged assassin of Shinzo Abe did it with a homemade shotgun, is what we're being told. Ghost guns, which are essentially homemade guns with parts that are acquired from one place to another and can't be traced. It is a rampant problem right here in Los Angeles County, about 30 to 40 percent from a recent report of the guns seized in the county are ghost guns, and it's very hard for any kind of existing gun laws to cover anybody with a will to you know, carry out carnage uh, is going to, you know, be able to procure the parts if they have the competency to to make a gun and carry out some sort of atrocity like that. But that has to be very unsettling because of ways that they are looking to specifically dodge gun laws. Right. So I think you have a good point there. However, in general, people, most people couldn't make an assault weapon. That That's rapid fire. They could hire somebody. 
they could hire somebody, but again, um, I mean, we, we saw the, the, you know, the Las Vegas shooter gamed his guns and with bump stocks so he can make them rapid fire machine gun, like, like, um, fire. So yeah, you can do it. But, um, but if we just had a ban on assault weapons, it would go a long way to stopping many mass shootings. And there are examples of like Australia where they had a mass shooting in 1996 and they decided we don't want to have any more mass shootings. So then they, outlawed all rifles and assault rifles and then they bought them back and they were able to get them out of the population it will take a while not everybody will comply but it will still um, reduce the number of guns in the, in the population so compared to to all of these other uh you know advanced uh certainly uh you know one by any measure would consider very civilized societies whether it's in asia or western europe uh, that have managed to get their their arms around the issue of guns and and come up with a solution that for the most part works. Why is it that we have such difficulty? Is it because the Constitution ironically stands in the way? Is it because by nature we're a violent people? Why do you think? Well, I think here I think people are people pretty much all around the world, um, and the Constitution does not get in the way. We had better gun laws two hundred years ago on the Wild Wild West than we do right now. Um, currently, but we had reasonable gun policies where you couldn't carry a gun in town. You had, whenever you arrived in town, you had to turn your gun into either the police department, it would be like the sheriffs or marshal, whatever, or or turn it in at your hotel. Um, and that worked fine and it reduced um, gun shootings. But um, but the other thing is, like, I will say this, like one thing that there's a dramatic difference of um, between Asian culture in general and U.S. culture it's just the belief that you have some right and your right to do something um, prevails over other people's right to life. So an example, when we were going through COVID in America, you have people who were like, I don't want a vaccine. I don't want a mask. And, and even though they would demand their rights, even if it meant they would kill other people and they did. And so in contrast, we have Asian culture in Japan and in, in particular, um, where it's an aberration to not care for the community, your family or other people. And it's, it's a cultural norm to take care of your community and take care of others over yourself. So the protection of um, people in general is more important than your individual rights. And that's a very nice thing. Okay. Boy. And so I was going to also say, you said, you know, we're a civilized nation. I would say America is not um, pretty much most developed countries have um, very good gun laws. The U.S. does not. And I think we're beyond civility right now. We're, it's, we're expected to see mass shootings all the time and that somehow we accept it. And why do we have this same conversation? Lori Post, director of the Bueller Center for Health Policy and Economics at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Lori, thanks. Well, not very long ago in a galaxy not very far away, store shelves were empty. Supply chain problems and major backlogs at the ports kept products from reaching shelves and into the hands of, well, you and me. Looks like that's changing. The port backlogs are being cleared, and those empty shelves are now full again. Many are so full that stores across the country are now offering big sales to get rid of all the merchandise. Kristen Myers is editor-in-chief at TheBalance.com, which helps people with their finances. And Kristen, are we at the cusp of a stuff apocalypse? <laughs> I, I, I like that name. Um, well, what it seems is happening is that a lot of retailers, a couple of things happened. As you mentioned, some of those supply chains are starting to clear up. So over in L.A., which is one of the busiest ports, we are seeing a backlog of about eight days before they get to go out, all of the goods get to go out on rails. 
so what uh, shippers have started to do is actually to send those goods and items to the ports over at New York and New Jersey or in Savannah, and that's really helping ease some of the backlog. And then there's the fact that these retailers had made these big orders months and months in advance, hoping, of course, that consumers would come in and buy them. And thanks to inflation, they weren't. So now they're essentially stuck with all of this stuff, you know, as you're mentioning, um, and they're having to give deep discounts to essentially just get it off the shelves and out of the stores. And so it provides an opportunity for you, me, and everyone else that's at home listening to really take advantage. And, and, and we do want to get in a minute to some of the things that maybe you can get that's a lot cheaper now than before. But I am curious about, because uh, you'd mentioned in passing inflation, and of course that's the big concern now, but with all of these store shelves so overfilled, what was the term you used, Brian? Stuffpocalypse. Yeah, okay. Stuffpocalypse. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, wouldn't that in the end, bring down inflation because they're going to have to decrease these prices. People will pay less. So the inflation rate, largely driven by consumer demand for products, would go down. Yes? Well, that is a very, very good point because that does mean that, of course, people are going to start spending. They're going to have to pay less for every single item. But somewhere along the line, the cost still remains the same for those products, right? So if a a store goes out and decides to put in a bulk order on TVs, for example, they're still seeing these elevated costs um, associated with that product. Um, And so it doesn't seem that this is going to really bring down inflation, but some of the some of the lower prices will definitely help ease uh, some of the inflation that we're seeing. But it's not going to get rid of inflation altogether. That still remains the job of the Federal Reserve and raising interest rates. Are there big ticket items uh, that could be up for grabs here? Uh, you know, Charles said at the top of the broadcast, uh, maybe half jokingly, yeah, I think I'll just uh, walk away with a, a TV for maybe like <laughs> 20 bucks. Uh, are we that far off, though? I mean, no, 10 uh, bucks. 10, 10 bucks. bucks. Yeah, yes. not 20. Tre- right. 10 is let, as let, far yeah, as I I'll go. Yeah, I'll get that straight. But I mean, could, could we see things for, because we've had stories about refrigerators on back order for months mm-hmm. and, you know, all, all, maybe even, even cars. I mean, stuff that really could actually move the needle when it comes to the economy and, you know, getting stuff moving. Okay, so when it comes to what items really might be on sale, you have to think about the items that consumers or or shoppers really stopped buying over the last year. And it is some of those really big ticket items like refrigerators or televisions or microwaves, for example, because what happened is consumers haven't stopped spending money. In fact, retail sales, as we've been seeing, continue to, to go up. So clearly folks are still buying things and they're still going out and spending their money, but what they're spending it on has changed. So Americans right now are really wanting to get out of the house and they're, they're wanting to go to a bar or a restaurant. They're wanting to go and travel. Uh, they want to go and rent a car in that new destination that they're going to. But they weren't spending as much money on things like a TV or a computer, for example. And so those are going to be the items that really are in overstock and oversupply at some of the stores. And that's where you can really see really big discounts. I don't know if you're going to be able to get a TV for only $10. That's my price. discount might not be that cheap, uh, but you probably can get, I've been just seeing anecdotally online myself, discounts of 30, 40, 50, and sometimes even 60% off on some items. So there are some very good deals and savings to be had. So, you get one of those 1980s uh, old TVs. Yeah, little, little, room, yeah. So, so people are going to pay through the nose if they want to travel on a vacation because airfares are going up and so are hotel costs, but they'll end up being at home with like surrounded by 20 TV sets. 
pretty much. And you can maybe use those TVs to to put on a background of Hawaii, perhaps, and pretend you're there. So that way you don't have to spend the money on the plane ticket. <laughs> That's one way to do it. Yeah. Okay, Kristen Myers, Editor-in-Chief at TheBalance.com, helping people with their finances. Kristen, thank you. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Brian Ping in from Mike Simpson. Today, I'm Charles Feldman. Rock star Kenny Loggins has been performing and writing songs for decades now, earning fame in the early 1970s when he partnered with Jim Messina. He later hit it even bigger as a solo star, especially in the 1980s, of songs like Footloose and Danger Zone, which helped the movie Top Gun surge in popularity. Loggins is now sharing stories from his life as a rock icon for decades. He has a new memoir called Still All Right. He's also performing next Friday and Saturday at the Hollywood Bowl with Jim Messina to mark their 50th anniversary as a duo. And with us now is Kenny Loggins. Kenny, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. So tell us, Kenny, about this whole story with Tom Cruise and how he talked with you about using Danger Zone again for Top Gun Maverick, and he wanted something new, and then suddenly he didn't. How'd that all go along? Yeah, well, it went really well. It was uh, that I had never met Tom, you know, in all these years. Uh, we'd never really worked together directly. And um, we both ended up on the Jimmy Kimmel show um, about six years ago, I think. And I said, I understand you're doing the not new Top Gun. And he said, yeah. And I said, so tell me the truth. Is Danger Zone in or out? And he said, it wouldn't be Top Gun without Danger Zone. And he stayed really true to his word. It's it's an integral part. But you were originally uh, not going to do the vocals on that, right? Right. Uh, somebody else. There's a, a lot of urban legend about who it was. And a lot of acts are now coming out of the woodwork saying, no, it was me. No, it was me. But uh, I, I know that there were a few there that were supposedly in line ahead of me. And uh, whether it was the lawyers or what happened, I know um, um, Mickey Thomas from the Starship uh, passed on it. Um, and I know um, Kevin Cronin from REO passed on it because he said the notes were too high for him. But uh, so anyway, it came to where I was in the studio making Playing with the Boys for the same movie. And then um, I got a call from Giorgio's office and one thing led to another. And three days later, I was in the studio with Giorgio recording, Giorgio Moroder uh, recording uh, uh, Danger Zone. How did you approach that song? Because, you know, it's a hard driving rock song, an iconic 80s anthem. Yeah. How, how you're going to you know, attack this as the, the big rock banger that it ended up being? Well, you know, I was into uh, Tina Turner's record, uh, Private Dancer at the time, and I loved how she brought her R&B style into a rock and roll form. And I, I brought the record with me into the vocal session and played it a little of it for Giorgio and said, this is I want, the, I want my vocal to kind of have this quality and have this sound. So that's what we went for. I, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Kenny, about your uh, memoir, your new memoir, which we mentioned is called Still All Right. Uh, when you sat down to come up with it and to kind of think back on your own life, what surprised you most about your own life? Oh, God, there were so many. You know, I, I, I refer to the, the process of writing a memoir as a cross between uh, therapy and a deposition. <laughs> One thing leads to another. Um, there were quite a few uh, awarenesses, if you will, about relationships that I had, including my mom and dad, you know, I, I saw my dad's issue with sleeping pills and, 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 you know, then subsequently to have to take a Dexamil to be able to go to work. And, uh, I 
never got into the Dexamil part of it, but I definitely got into the benzo thing. And I saw that it was very much a throwback to what they call generational pain, a throwback to my father. And, um, and you know, just one thing leads to another, a lot of, a lot of perceptions about people that I had relationships with, you know, whether it was Jimmy Messina or even my brother or ex-wives, the deepening, once we put some scrutiny on those relationships, I, I had deepening understandings of what they were really about. Well, you're back together with Jim Messina for these shows uh, at the Bowl coming up. You'd gone decades, the two of you, without performing together. What was the relationship, if there was any, over that time? Were there, uh, was it amicable? Were there any hard feelings at all? Was it before you, you two reconciled? Or, or and then, and then, why now? What what brought you back together now? Well, this is the 50 year, you know, anniversary. So there was definitely a, a nod in store uh, at some point, you know, that, but Jimmy and I worked together. We did uh, two major uh, reunion tours in 05 and again in 08. And those went really well. Um, But, you know, sometimes it's sort of like I I was joking with a friend. I said, well, you know, somebody asked if I wanted to do a summer tour with Loggins and Messina. I said, that's like asking me to move in with my (laughs) ex-wife. You know, there there are certain aspects to it you don't necessarily want to revisit. But uh, Jimmy and I do well. Uh, We're business partners. And this is how it kind of uh, ties into the memoir and this happening too with the shows because a lot of you know an overarching theme with the memoirs are the the nature of your relationships and how sometimes even our closest relationships can prove to be fleeting sometimes you're very candid about the the two divorces that you've had and it had to be a very difficult uh period to you know sit down and really focus and write about that yeah that was the hardest stuff was especially the second marriage because We'd gone so public with our relationship in a book we wrote together called Unimaginable Life. And and then all of a sudden to have that end up in divorce was uh, shocking to me, surprising, and really knocked me for a loop there for a few years during that time. And and so to revisit it and to, and to really look at it as why why didn't it work? Why couldn't we have made it? And And drop into that. It was a difficult time for me for a few, you know, like a month. I mean, if you were able to go back and change some of your relationships, which ones would you have changed? Well, I think it's a matter of of consciousness, meaning, you know, when when Jimmy and I had our big run, we were both 21 years old and you're still a kid. You know, you're still looking, who am I now? How do I define myself? And then they have instant success thrown on top of that. You know, we we went from opening for Curtis Mayfield at the Troubadour to headlining within a couple of weeks. And, uh, and then we hit in the college arena really quickly. So I think our heads were spinning in all sorts of directions, trying to keep up with it. I was living in a half a duplex in East LA for $65 a month. And the next thing I had was a BMW three liter coupe. So, you know, you have to learn how to keep, save you spend money when that happens so quickly kenny when when you record songs like whether it's the footloose uh, soundtrack or danger zone for top gun at the time could you tell that a particular song was really going to take off and why does a particular song resonate when others sometimes fall flat those are two good questions one is that can I tell? I, I could tell with I'm All Right, the one you just played. Um, 
I, I knew that I had a good, what I call a big fish on the hook, but you never know how that's going to go because there's so many people and things involved in promoting a record, but having it connected to a movie helps a lot. I was quickly soon to learn. And, um, the, the other part of the question about, um, was it writing a song you wanted? No, no. Why, why do some songs, it, oh, yeah, it, yeah. songs that you just think and you feel in your bones are going to be just enormous hits, and then they sometimes just go nowhere? You, you just never know. You know, going into the studio to sing Danger Zone, we were kind of playing with it because you figure, yeah, if, if the movie doesn't hit or if something goes wrong with the soundtrack, no one's going to hear it anyway. So, you know, give it your best and have fun with it. And, and maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. It, and I just got lucky that the whole King of soundtrack stuff was because I hit three really uh, was involved with three iconic movies, you know, that Top Gun, Footloose and Danger Zone are still heavily rented movies. And the distinctive sound that you have created, you and some other artists around that time it's so beloved that it, it continues to take on new life now. And I think you might be knowing where I'm going with this, but the whole yacht rock phenomenon, whether you like to admit it or not, you're kind of, you know, one of the kings of this whole movement. And it's, you know, revived a lot of uh, your music on the radio. It's an opportunity to maybe, you know, go out and, and, and perform it. So what do you think about this whole uh, phenomenon? Do you just think it's silly or are you just having fun with it? No, I, I like it. I think that to have it turned into a classification, <laughs> we didn't see that coming. You know, it's that we were just sort of following our passion. This is this is a combination of the styles of music that we're drawn to. And um, and so we write in that style. We write with each other like Michael and I did. Um, Michael McDonald. Right. And, you know, we're writing in this, this sort of wide R&B, if you will, that uh, we grew into. And uh, so when I left Loggins and Messina, which was more of a country rock thing, I started writing with keyboard players uh, because I was imagining chords, hearing chords and hearing changes that I did not know how to play. So I wanted to work with people that, that did. And one thing led to another, but you know, the whole Yacht Rock thing is, is people are having fun with it and they, and they totally get what the music is about now. So it's, it's a great uh, to have that happen actually. All these years later, is the business still fun for you? Was it ever fun for you or was it always a business? Well, it's always a business, but it's also, it can be fun if you, if you let it be. And, um, I, I think for the most part, looking back on it, I think I had fun. That's why there's so many funny stories in the book, you know, cause you, you can keep your sense of humor through the whole thing, not take it too seriously. It is just pop culture. People want to know, Kenny, and, uh, if, if it's something that you may feel a little bit uncomfortable with, you let me know, but what was the whole thing? With Garth Brooks, are you too cool or just not uh, with each other or do you just not talk or is that all water under the bridge right now? Because there was something about uh, borrowing versus stealing in music. That's something that we've seen a lot and a lot more recently. But how did that all play out and has it been uh, settled to your satisfaction? Oh, yeah, it was settled a long time ago. Um, I wrote about it because it was another thing that was interesting in my past, you know, and how how it was handled. Um, And. I, I think we're cool with it. Uh, I haven't heard from Garth about this at all, and he certainly had an opportunity, but I don't think he wants to rehash it either. It's just something that came and went. Um, 
And uh, I thought it was interesting in as it was a piece of my history. Well, talk about the phenomenon as about, you know, being inspired by acts that you love and this downright ripping them off without their permission, because sometimes it can be a fine line. People that outside the music industry might not completely understand. Yeah, no, the, the people don't understand it. And I didn't until I got involved with this issue between Conviction of the Heart, my song with Guy Thomas and Standing Outside the Fire. Um, and Jenny Yates, I think her name was, that was his collaborator. And it, in court, it comes down to in, intention. What was the intention of the second writer, uh, meaning, you know, Garth and Jenny, was their intention to write a song exactly like Conviction of the Heart or somewhat like, you know, and it is a fine line. I mean, where where does inspiration stop and and this, you know, stealing, as you put it, start and how much of that song can you can you borrow i want to go back to the, your memoir again uh still all right kenny uh were there things that as you were putting it together and, and sort of thinking about what you wanted were there certain things that you just thought i'm not going to go there even though i want to be open and even though i want to sort of be honest with fans who are going to read about uh, my life were there just some things that you decided were too private, too uh, painful, that you were not going to touch it? Well, I, I wanted to be really careful with my relationships with my two ex-wives because we're all on really good terms now, and it's taken a lot of work to get there. And the last thing I want to do is blow that door down and, you know, reignite bad feelings. Uh, so I, I sent them copies of what I wrote. I, it really tried hard to to tell the truth about my reality during that period of time and how it affected me emotionally and how it affected my music, what music came from those moments. And because I, I felt that, that the audience really was more interested in, in how the music came to be. And so if, if something had a direct connection to the music, then I wrote about it, but I wrote about my feelings on it and my, my experience and didn't try to overanalyze either of them. That's Kenny Loggins. He's got a new memoir out called Still All Right. He'll be performing next Friday and Saturday at the Hollywood Bowl with Jim Messina, marking their 50th anniversary as a duo. Kenny, thanks so much. Thank you. This has been KNX In-Depth.